And we come to a familiar section this evening in 1 Timothy. Uh, the whole of 1 Timothy is familiar at some level to us, but certain sections are more familiar than others. And we've made our way to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we spent last week looking at the qualifications for overseers, for pastors, for elders. These are all interchangeable terms. And we took a good hard look at what was expected by God, what was the apostolic expectation for Timothy, and what is expected of those who will serve in the leadership of the church. And that was a powerful time to sit and set our expectations in proper order when it comes to the leadership of the local church, right? And we follow up on that with another set of characteristics, another examination of the second office of the church. And really, these are the only two offices defined for us in the New Testament. And I think most of you are probably aware of that. There are just pastors, elders, and there are deacons. That's really it. I'm not sure if you know, but there aren't trustees in the New Testament. That's not an office that was derived from the New Testament as much as out of practicality in our current situation. Uh, There are not uh, extended offices that flow from the apostolic time period. There are not elder councils that are set up over regions to watch over. Those are not New Testament concepts. There are just two local church categories and offices for ministry. One is the leadership of the local church, the oversight and the direction of the local church, and the instruction for the local church, and that flows from the elders. And the second one is found in the office of deacon, the ministers and the servants, the exemplary servants of the church. This is not a second-class citizen within the church. This is someone to be honored, to be respected in their ministry to the church. So, just at the outset here, be reminded that from the New Testament perspective, there are only elders or overseers, pastors, whichever your word of choice, and deacons. That's it. Those are the only two, and they're always plural. They are a plural office. There are multiple elders in the church, and there are multiple deacons within the church. And it is the deacons that will examine this evening. Now, deacons in our time have fallen on confusion, to say the least. Uh, there are deacons who are really elders cloaked in the title of deacon, and so they actually meet and oversee and provide the oversight of the entirety of the ministry of the local church. They teach, they instruct, and they provide the direction for the local ministry. That was the case in my background. Deacons operated with decision-making, with guidance and direction for the local church, really as the elders were to be operating, albeit with elders included into the deacons. But there was a deacon board that operated as a governing board of the local assembly. That's not what we find to be true from our New Testaments and the little that is said about deacons. Some deacons are just the gophers of the dictator that happens to run that particular local church. And you may have come into contact with this scenario where the deacons are the go-boys for the big kahuna who is the pastor of the church. And uh, by God's grace, I hope the title big kahuna is never one that is given to me. I'm not a big kahuna, right? That's, that's just Hawaiian. That just is the chief. That's the big guy. That's the one in charge. 
And that is not the case within the local church. There is a plurality of elders. They are equal, different in responsibility, different in influence. And as a primary teaching pastor or elder, there is some level of accountability that is different, and yet there is no one isolated big cheese that issues out his edicts for the little measly deacons to carry out. That's not a biblical model from our New Testaments. Some deacons today in churches are chosen inappropriately. It's just simply a status symbol. If you're an important person within the body, if you have made a good deal of money, if you've been successful in business, if you have been a friend of many within the body, then you get, not unlike offices within our cities and our communities, you get elected to the office of deacon. And people pat you on the back and say, it's about time you were made a deacon, Jim. You've been doing things in this church and boy, you've just been a successful guy. We're glad that you're finally a deacon. And that doesn't mean anything to his responsibility within the church. It just means that he's been granted a title, a popularity title. It is a who's who club in some churches. That, of course, flies in the face of the very word deacon, which we'll study and examine tonight. But that is not what we find from our New Testaments as the model to be followed. And some deacons, bless their hearts, and this has been a recent case, are just really searching for their meaning and what they're supposed to be doing within the local church. There is a model that minimizes deacons to anybody who's active in the church. So the only people that that would leave as not deacons are disobedient and lame duck Christians within the church, right? So that would be a difficult setting to be in because we wouldn't know why we were deacons other than the fact that we love our Christ and we want to serve him in the church. There certainly seems to be a particular office granted here, and there's no doubt about it when we come to the grammar of what we find in 1 Timothy 3. There is an office that is set aside in their ministry, in their service. Though we know from Ephesians 4 that elders are given, pastors are given to equip the body for the work of the ministry. So it's not as if the deacons do the ministry and the rest of us just sit back and relax. It's not as if elders or pastors do the work of the ministry and we all sit back and relax. Rather, there are elders and pastors or elders pastors, teachers, who are given the oversight in the direction of the church. There are deacons who are leading by example in their service and overseeing the ministry work that must go on. And there are Christians of every stripe serving and using their gifts within the body of Christ. That's the picture that we find from the New Testament. Some have built the illustration. In fact, Mark Dever, one of my favorite authors, current authors today, Mark Dever is painted the picture this way, the elders draw out the road map for the bus. The deacons make sure that bus has the gas and is running properly, and the people get in and move that bus from one point to the next. And so there is a general population of ministry and service. There are deacons who are setting in order the direction of the church, and that direction is being overseen, and the vision is being cast by the elders, the pastor-teachers of the ministry. So, deacons have fallen on confusing times. Many of you might be sitting here thinking, okay, I didn't think I was confused about deacons, but my category was in one of those confusing ones. So what is it that God demands of this office? 
Well, Paul cares about the office of deacon. He cares about the local church in general. In fact, in verse 15 of chapter 3, which we're actually going to study next week, I think that's on your sheet tonight, we'll study 14, 15, and 16 next week. Paul gives his purpose statement for this section and for this letter. If he delays, Paul says in verse 15, he wants Timothy to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So he's concerned that the church be run properly. And this is not a popular thing to talk about. This may seem boring or mundane, and yet this is vital because we fall under the headship of Jesus Christ in the church, correct? So we want to be doing things in the manner in which he ordained them and which through his inspired word he has given to us and instructed us. That brings us to the office of deacon. Let's read it together. In fact, let's read the whole chapter together just to get the context and get our bearings here in 1 Timothy, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Read along with me silently. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he is desiring a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for, the, for God's church? Verse 6, He must not be a recent convert, this overseer, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may, he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, we're going to discuss this verse in particular, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, Paul says in verse 14, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth, a fortress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that being Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. We've been reading and studying these in the morning. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And this is the word of the Lord for our examination this evening. So we come tonight to the ministry, the high calling of the ministry of deacons within the local church. And we'll divide this section, this paragraph from verses 8 down to verse 13. We'll divide it up into three divisions for the sake of our study this evening. First of all, we'll see the necessary character of deacons. Their character is important. 
Secondly, we'll see the intentional assignment of deacons. So not only the necessary character, but the intentional assignment of deacons. And then finally, we'll see the divine incentives for deacons. What is it that is laid out as benefit, as incentive for the office of deacon? So that's a little bit of a roadmap to what we'll be studying this evening. Preaching, then singing, then preaching is having its effect on my voice. So we'll try to keep going strongly this evening. First and foremost, the necessary character of deacons. Let's jump right into verse 8 and let's have a look at what God demands of this office of deacon. First of all, deacon itself is a word that simply means minister. It means servant. It's not the same word, doulos, as slave that we find in our New Testaments, but it is a word that means a minister, one who serves others. It's a generic word, and it is used generically throughout the New Testament of those who ministered towards others. And yet here in our context, it's certainly set apart as a particular office. In fact... In verse 10, we see that those who have been tested are to be allowed to serve as deacons. That would be ministering as ministers. So deaconing, if we were to make it a verb, is a very real and valid part of the life of the church. It is an office within the church. It is also tied back in its structure of those who serve as examples to the church with the word likewise. Likewise ties us back to what we've studied about elders in verses 1 to 7. And so Paul here is giving us a new category for discussion within the structure of the local church. Likewise, deacons. And in verse 10, or verse 11, he will say, likewise, their wives, likewise, he'll set apart another category of individuals, another grouping for examination within the structure of the local church ministry, okay? That's the context. We are moving on to a new subject within the same theme of the structure of those who serve within the local church. Now, we have another list, and you remember last week the challenge of the list. challenge is to keep our attention span glued in when we know that there's there's just eight things coming, and we've already looked at these. In fact, a bunch of them are repeats from the elder list. And if you think it's difficult, think about what I'm thinking about right now. I have to somehow make us reminded and interested in a repeated list of characteristics. And so I'll challenge you this way. This ought to serve. This ought to serve as the mirror of James 1. Okay? So you have an opportunity tonight, along with me, to look in the mirror of the Word of God. Let's look in the mirror. The mirror, in its perfection, is marked out by these characteristics of those who serve as examples. It was marked out last week of the characteristics of those who serve as the leadership of the church. So let's stare into the mirror and let's not be afraid to see the dirt and the grime that's on our character and on our face, spiritually speaking. And let's be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and let's walk away not being just hearers but doers after seeing what's in the mirror. It would be foolish for us to look at the mirror of the Word and then to walk away as if nothing happened. Right? So let's look at this list together. 
First of all, deacons, this office of servant, of minister within the church, is to be dignified. The first word is dignified, and it is a sober and serious outlook on life. Those who are to serve as example servants within the church are to be sober in their thinking. They're to be serious in their outlook. Not stoic. It's not that they can't laugh and have a joyful time. It's not that they do not rejoice in fellowship with other believers. But they are serious about what God is serious about. And that includes their ministry to the local church. They take that very seriously. They are dignified. They are careful in their attitude and in their actions because of their ministry to the local church. This is probably a more pointed question, a more pointed look in the mirror for young than it is for old. But it is across the spectrum. We do need to examine whether or not we could be identified, men or women, as dignified people. Do we take seriously our life and our ministry within the church because of the high calling and the high price that was paid for the salvation of our sin? Or are we flippant and silly about the most serious things in this life. One of the temptations of our world is to be silly about things that aren't funny, to laugh at things that God despises. And the deacon, the one who is an example servant, is dignified. He is serious. He is approaching his life and his ministry within the church with a focus that would be anything but flippant and silly about his work within the church. So he is a man dignified, and this is speaking to men. This is a man who is dignified. He is serious about what is serious. I lived in an example of a dignified home. We were as silly and as crazy as you could be when it was time to be silly and crazy. And we were as serious, the example set by my parents was serious when it was time to be serious. And there is an example given through the life of many who you have come in contact with and many who are sitting around you and many of you of dignity, of taking very seriously what God takes seriously. The second word falls right in suit with this because a dignified life would be one that is careful and concerned about their speech. And the deacon particularly is not to be double-tongued. You say, what? What does double-tongued mean? There are a couple different options for what it is to be double-tongued. One could be it is a gossip. You speak out both sides of your mouth. You are always playing other people off of other people. You are manipulating with your mouth. You are using your tongue with two different objectives in mind. You are double-tongued. I think the best understanding is that this person speaks one thing to one person and he speaks something else to another. The deacon is not one who serves as primarily one to make others happy or to be a people pleaser, which would lead to speaking one thing to one person and another to another. Rather, he is one who is dignified, serious, sober about his work. Therefore, he speaks the truth no matter who he's speaking to. He is single-tongued. He's consistent with his mouth. Whether you met him... In one setting or another, 
he would speak the truth to you. Whether you met him amongst friends in casual setting, he would still be serious about the things that are serious and enjoy those things which are to be enjoyed. So he is dignified and he must not be double-tongued. Now there's another negative. We have one positive. The dignity is a positive characteristic. Now we have three negatives. Not double-tongued. And the second one is not addicted to much wine. The word that we have here for addicted to much wine is, is a very vivid sense. The term has the sense of he doesn't linger with his wine. I think you're probably aware, you've studied New Testament history, that wine was a very real part. Alcohol was a very necessary and real part of their culture. The average family would have wine on hand, would, would use wine as a purification of their water three times or three parts to two. They would use wine throughout their daily lives. It would kill and purify their drinking water and it served as a beverage with some flavor to it. They're very basic in their choices. The characteristic here is that the deacon is not one, just like the elder, who is not to be a drunkard. The deacon is not one who lingers with his wine. He is not well acquainted with his wine. He does not love his wine. He is not given to drunkenness. Now, I'm going to go where we've said before, where angels fear to trod, and I'm going to say something tonight just to touch on it, but there is a popular movement within my generation, within evangelical churches, and it is to make much of drinking alcohol. We have a tendency as human beings to swing like a pendulum swings from one side to the other. So from one extreme, sometimes we swing back, to the other extreme. And I feel as if right now in my generation, we are in a, a, a swing of the pendulum on this particular issue. While many of you grew up in the prohibition and abstinence from all alcoholic beverages, the tide has turned, the pendulum has swung, and now there is a reverse legalism that is prevalent in the church. Leaders and laity alike have swung the pendulum from prohibition message to that of drink or you're not spiritually mature. I know, that's baffling to think of. If you're not engaged in alcoholic beverages, if you're not lingering with your drink, then you have not come to understand your liberty in Christ. Now, don't draw lines on what I've just said about me. Don't make hard, fast rules. My desire, like yours, I'm sure, is never to be on the pendulum swing but to hold to the biblical center, to hold to the Word of God and what it declares to us. And what it declares to us is those who serve, whether they be leading the church as elders or they be serving as example leaders or example servants, rather, in the church, drunkenness is forbidden and a desire and a love for alcoholic beverages is outside the bounds of the one who is to be held up as an example you'll remember that Timothy had completely stopped drinking alcohol. He had completely ceased from drinking all alcohol, no doubt because of the drunkenness that was rampant within Ephesus where he ministered, 
No doubt, as a ministry to those who were young in the faith and who were coming out of a religion that taught drunkenness as a spiritual worship form, Timothy had ceased in drinking all alcoholic beverages. You say, how do we know that? Well, Paul told him, you remember Paul told him, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. If that's not the most abused verse in Scripture, right there behind Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. I mean, those are the two verses that every person knows, it seems. Take a little wine for your stomach's sake and not water only. In other words, Paul told Timothy, stop just drinking water, Timothy. Your stomach's rotting and you have no medicinal options, so drink wine. It will help kill bacteria. It will help as a medicine for your condition. I'm just ranting and raving about alcohol. I understand that. That's not what I intended to do. The deacon, the example servant, is not to linger with alcohol. Is not to be lingering with his wine. It's not a clear declaration that wine is off limits. It is that drunkenness is forbidden, and that is the message of our New Testaments all the way through. And I would challenge you this evening to look into the mirror and ask if you are lingering long with your wine. I'll challenge you with that because that is the challenge of the Word of God. I would challenge you with the motive for why you are partaking of alcoholic beverages. What is the motivation behind it that is driving you in that direction? And you say, well, I'm not driven. Well, that's fine. You're not necessarily driven. could be a cultural reality in your life. But examine yourself that you be found not addicted to much wine. Okay? That was much more than I intended to say, and I'm sure that that just raised a whole lot of questions that I didn't want to be raised at this point. Let's move on in verse 8. This deacon, this example servant minister within the church who is held up as a faithful servant is not only to be dignified, single-tongued, unaddicted to much wine, but he's also not to be greedy for dishonest gain. And this, this follows suit. Go to Acts 6. Let's make a journey over to Acts 6. A hard left in your scriptures right after the Gospel of John. Acts chapter 6. And this is as early an account as we can come to, which is very close to the office of deacon. It's not titled for deacons here, but this is certainly where the concept comes from. And this is the office in its earliest stages of transition here in the foundation of the church in the book of Acts. Now, in Acts 6, verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, that's the church, People were being saved and increasing in number. Complaint by the Hellenists, that being the Greek Christians, arose against the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Greek Gentile widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and provision, which the church took responsibility for, and rightly so. And the twelve, that being the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples of Christ, minus Judas adding in Matthias or Matthias, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, the whole group of the church is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, that is, the widow's tables. So the number was so great that to meet this need and this legitimate need from the Hellenists, the twelve would need to stop teaching and preaching God's word so that they could get food to these folks. Therefore, brothers, 
Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And it goes on to tell us in verse 5 that this pleased the whole gathering. They understood this, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, who would be martyred for our Lord, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parnamus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set apart before the apostles, or they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they appointed them. They laid their hands on them, appointing them to this particular role. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, all that to say this. Deacons are not to be greedy for dishonest gain, and that is linked intrinsically in the New Testament church with their role. They were particularly functioning with making provision for those who were in need. They were providing money, food, clothing for those who could not make provision for themselves. They were bringing in the gifts. They were collecting the gifts from the other Christians who were giving and receiving freely with one another And the deacon must be careful not to be greedy for dishonest gain. He must not be a Judas within the church. Judas, we remember, was skimming off of the proceeds that were given for the provision of the disciples in the ministry of Jesus. It's hard to think kind thoughts about Judas. And yet this is the example that must be avoided with the example servants. All right? Moving on. In our list, not only are they to be not greedy for dishonest gain, but verse 9 tells us that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they must hold the gospel. The mystery of the faith is that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The mystery of the gospel was that the promises would be fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And they must hold that mystery. They must live that reality with a clear conscience. The conscience is the warning system of the heart. It warns you when you are sinning against it, and it is informable. It can be informed by truth, or it can be informed by tradition, but your conscience is active. And the deacon, the minister, the example servant, must live and hold the faith with a clear conscience. This is a true mark of Godward integrity. The conscience is exposed only to God. Not unlike the elders in the church, the deacons are to be men of the highest moral standards so that the mystery of the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is never soiled or despised. And so we ask as we look into the mirror, are we holding the faith? Are we holding the gospel with a clear conscience. I, for one, am young enough to remember the first day of a clear conscience. And some of you can remember that day as well. That was a day for me when I came home from ministering at a camp and I had promised my Lord, my Savior, that I would go and make as much human restitution as I could or offenses against other people within the community in which I had grown up. I told my dad about it. He commended me for that. He gave me the keys. 
And I took the vehicle and I drove the vehicle 40 minutes to where I had grown up. And I went from business to business and I met with their managers. And I discussed my sins against their companies, which I will not discuss with you. And I asked them for an opportunity to pay them back the money that was rightfully theirs, which I had in different ways stolen from their companies. It was a whole day of that. It was exhausting. At the end of that day, I'll never forget, I'll never, ever, ever forget getting into the vehicle, turning off the radio in silence, driving home, and for the first time in my life, I was holding the faith with a clear conscience. There was no more weight of offense. There was no more opportunity present in my life where someone could say, that guy's a Christian, let me tell you about what that guy has done. As much as I could, I had cleared my conscience before men and certainly had cleared my conscience before God. There is a reality at salvation of the weight lifted. Many of you have talked about this. When you came to know the Lord, it was as if a weight was lifted off of your shoulders. That is the conscience being wiped clear of its offense. It has had offense after offense after offense before a holy God, and in the sacrifice of Christ, that offense is removed. And on a human level, when we go and we confess our sin to our brother or sister who has been offended, in a human sense, and we ask for their forgiveness, our conscience is again cleared in the human aspect of the pressure and the guilt of offense. The clear conscience is a must for the example servant within the church. He cannot be serving. She cannot be serving with a conscience that has been offended and is holding sin undealt with inside. This is a daunting call, but it's a glorious one. And I trust that you testify with me to the glories of a clear conscience before God and before men. What else do we find about these deacons? Well, lastly, we find the deacon in verse 12 is to be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. And this draws us back to what we found in 3, 1 to 7 about elders. And that is that the deacon is to have a family life that matches his service within the church. How is it that an example minister could have a family that he is not managing and caring for at home? There is a moral obligation of sexual purity and of faithfulness to one's spouse. This is not a marriage issue as much as it is one of the heart that the deacon is to be a one-woman man. He is to be a one-woman man. Men who are to be set aside for the office of deacon within the church are to be men of the highest moral character, for they stand as example ministers within the church. They are to be above reproach. They are to be likewise to the office of elder. These are the men that the church should be looking for. They are to be examples of the ministry of the church, and we are all to be engaged in the ministry of of the church. Well, we have come to 7.10 and we have not entered verse 11 and that's where we are going to find ourselves 
for the remainder of our time, and that's all the further I believe we're going to get. So in the necessary character of a deacon, we find this caveat given to us, and maybe your translation reads this differently, but the ESV says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. I'll not say this often because it comes across potentially with some arrogance, and there should be no arrogance read into this statement, but this would be better translated as just simply women. It is the word for women. That's the word that's used. It's not the word for wife that is used here, and it would be better suited to be translated for us just as it stands and allow us to interpret what Paul meant by women rather than having our translation interpret it for us. Women, likewise, must be dignified. That is the true sense, the literal sense of what's there. Wives, the word that could be used for wives is not used here. There is no there, T-H-E-I-R. There's no there in the Greek language. There's nothing tying them back, these women, to the men of verses 8, 9, and 10, and verse 12. The likewise sets apart a new group, just as verse 8 set apart a new group with the men. There was no feminine version of deacon. There's no word in the feminine for deacon. Later, after our New Testaments, the Greek language created a word for deacon, which we translate deaconess. But that word is not in our New Testaments. There was no word equivalent to a lady deacon or a lady example minister. Elders' wives are given no requirements, no expectations. And yet, deacons' wives are? This would be a question that would stand with uh, some serious problems. So we can understand this as women. And I don't encourage you to slash things out of your scriptures, but just please note that women is the concept that is here. I'm not moving away from a long history of understanding of this passage. In fact, this is a frustrating part of having an English translation, and there's not many because it's a glorious thing. But when the translation interprets for us, instead of just translating, we get into a real problem. This is why certain versions of the Bible in English are particularly problematic for us, because they interpret. And so instead of just translating, they put it into their own words and they interpret what we should understand in their estimation of a certain passage. And in this text, that's what the ESV and that's what several very good translations have done. They have interpreted the word women to be tied back to the men, and it would seem that the, 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 the weight of proof would lean the opposite direction. This is a group of ladies who are set apart for ministry, example ministry within the church. This is why our church has the office of deacon and deaconess. We see Phoebe as an example of this in Romans 16.1. Phoebe is set apart as one who ministers. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon is the word, that's the word that's used, a deacon of the church at Centuria. So Phoebe was not just a minister, she was an actual deacon of that church, and the specificness of that title lends itself to our understanding that women, in fact, serve in this particular role. So lady deacons 
are set up with these character requirements. They are dignified, just as men should be, serious about the serious. They're not to be slanderers. Their mouths are to come into play. Lady deacons are to be careful with their tongue. It's not to be used for gossip and guile, but for edification and service of the body. Lady deacons, verse 11, must be sober-minded, which includes abstinence from drunkenness and a general state of a sober, serious mind. It is a mind that is not under the control of some other substance. We saw that as a description of the elder as well. This is the character. These are the heart issues. These are the characteristics, the fruits of the Spirit seen out in the life of the one who is set up as an example minister in the church. And lady deacons must be faithful in all things. They are to be faithful. They are to be consistent in their service so that they can be found trustworthy in their ministry to the church. This is a quick glance at the necessary character. There are only two other facets from this whole passage. There's the assignment of deacons and there's the divine incentive. Let's get to them quickly and we'll move forward from this next week. Look then at verse 10 for the identification for the assignment of deacons. How are they to be chosen? How are they to be identified within the local assembly? And let them, as being to the deacons, let them also be tested first. So there is a testing period. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So their lives are to be tested. Their character is to be of the foremost importance and their commitment to Christ and to serving within the local body is the measure for evaluating the assignment of deacons and deaconesses within the church. There should be an affirmation in their service and a setting aside, a calling out for the exemplary, for the example ministry of the office of deacons. Let me get... Let me get a little bit more practical as far as Grace Church goes. Deacons in the future, and we don't have any at this point, we're looking for them. So if you're out there, deacon, we need to meet you. Deacons are those who have been tested and those who are deaconing faithfully. That is our understanding of the New Testament. They are faithful, spirit-filled individuals who are already ministering, who are being faithful in their tasks within the church. They are using their gifts with the body They are faithful and committed and their character is holding up by the grace of God under the scrutiny of this passage. They must be tested and proven and then they are to be assigned by the leadership called out from among the body and laid hands on by the leadership and set apart for exemplary service within the church. Now finally we come to verse 13. And there are benefits, there are incentives for this reason. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves, or a good standing for themselves rather, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here's a twofold incentive for those who serve in the office of deacon within the church. And this may catch you as something of a surprise. I trust it won't. Here's the twofold incentive. One, they'll gain a good standing. They will be honored and loved and respected within the body. 
they will gain a good standing for themselves in the church. There is no improvement of your standing before God. No office gets a better standing before God, right? We are sinners saved by grace. But within the ministry, an incentive for their service is the opportunity to have a good standing within the church. And secondly, the second reward or incentive for those who serve as examples, deacons within the church, is that they gain a great confidence in the faith that saves. Their lives, their ministry in the church is completely wrapped up in the outward expressions of the faith that is ours. This is faith working at its highest level. Therefore, the result is a great confidence, a settledness in the validity of faith and the validity of the message of the gospel. Faith that is in Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus. This is the benefits package for the deacon And this should spur many of us, many of you on in your ministry and in your service. Now, incentives are not foreign to Scripture. These are not outside the bounds of what we see elsewhere in Scripture. Matthew 29, 29 speaks of reward for service. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 speaks of the same truth. Hebrews 12, 2, Revelation 2 and 3 is wrapped up in believers being honored and being respected for their ministry. And that is to encourage us and to spur us on. Never in pride, never in self-exaltation, but in the promise of James 4 that those who are humbled, those who serve, those who minister in purity of motive and character, the Lord will exalt. He takes joy in exalting the humble. A good standing and a great confidence. All that to say, you should be evaluating your lives. You should be faithful in service. Not for the sake of being named to an office. Not for the sake of status. All of these characteristics that are marked out of the deacon are characteristics that should be part of the Christian life. No matter what office you hold or if you ever hold an office of example minister within the church. We are searching. You can join us in prayer that God would set apart faithful people, and He is doing so, faithful people with character that is proven and tested who will serve as examples to all of us as servants within our ministry, who will provide care and oversight and direction from the elders in its real-life forms in the church so that as time goes on and as we progress and mature as a ministry, David and I and other elders who will be gathered with us can give ourselves to the word and to prayer and to instruction. That is the model from our New Testaments. We are not devoid of any ministry responsibility. None of you are because of the offices of the church. But rather, these are an encouragement to us. This is the structure that God has ordained for the pillar and the buttress of the truth, which is the church.